You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. All right. I don't know if I deserve that introduction, but I'm thankful for it. And those, there you go. Yeah, I like that. Who said that? Oh, yeah. All right. You know what? I do. I'm just kidding about that. Um, it's so funny. Everywhere I go, the goats follow me. It's just incredible. It's just something that was an idea that I had, and then all of a sudden just caught on. And now everybody comes to me, hey, man, how are the goats? I'm like, oh, thanks for asking. <laughs> all right, well... Thank you. It's, it's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, first, I want to thank uh, Pastor Morgan and the elders and, of course, the pastoral team. Thank you for this opportunity. That means a lot to me to be able to share this morning. I'm, I'm deeply humbled and honored to do this. Um, as Barnabas said, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Dan Duran, former missionary of eight years to various universities in the Austin area. Uh, my wife and I are also uh, high school sweethearts. We've been together for 17 years. 17 years. Uh, married almost 10, uh, and I just want to say this real quick, this is worth talking about. Um, some of you may know that my youngest daughter was born a month ago, and she's been in the NICU, um, but we appreciate all of your thoughts and prayers. Happy to report that she's a miracle. She's getting better every day, so we're really thankful for that. Um, so on behalf of my wife and I, thank you. Thank you for standing with us and supporting us during this time. We, we couldn't do this without the love and support of the people of the church. And uh, my wife and I are originally from El Paso, so if you know where that is, uh, that's in Texas. <laughs> and if you don't know where that is, you just take a left at Midland and just keep on going. <laughs> but uh, yeah, long way, that's right. But I think that's enough about me for now. Uh, I'll be around after service if you want to talk more or if you just want to pretend that I have something good to say. Uh, I'll appreciate that too. And that was a joke and they're not getting any better, so <laughs> buckle up. All right, with that said, let's, we should probably do something here. Uh, let's get into the message. You know, when Pastor Morgan asked me to preach on Luke 10, particularly on this passage that we're about to get into, I was so excited for a couple of reasons, in particular because of the theme of this series, which is reversal. And we're asking, how does faith in Jesus take what makes sense to us in the natural and reverse it in the supernatural power of his kingdom? Today we come to a passage that is one of the most well-known in all the Bible, uh, very known all over the world. It's something that's been a part of our everyday language, even if we're not even Christians. It's, it's a story very gripping um, that leaders around the world, religious leaders around the world, and faith systems have talked about it. And of course, what I'm talking about is the story of the Good Samaritan. Just real quick, how, show of hands, how many of you look up to the Good Samaritan in this story? I mean, I do, yeah, yeah, okay, there's a couple hands, the rest of y'all pray for you. But um, the reason why that's significant is because we all know somebody who's been a good Samaritan to us. I remember there was a time, um, my wife and I were freshly married, and we lived in an apartment, and my neighbor Bob, and Bob, if you're listening, um, I, yes, I'm going to return your call. Um, but we got an Amazon package. And uh, Bob said, hey man, I, I know you weren't home, I didn't want it to get stolen, so I went ahead and just ran it to my house, and just call me when you're home and I'll bring it over to you. And I thought to myself, wow, what a nice guy, what a good Samaritan. That word 
is in our modern vernacular in a positive sense. Oh, look at that person, such a good Samaritan. Or, oh, wow, you're being such a good Samaritan. Some people even have their ministry name or their organization after that word, good Samaritan. And all of that is because of this parable that Jesus tells in Luke 10, where maybe for the first time in Jewish history, that word Samaritan is used in a positive sense. So this is accepted and not shocking the least for us today, um, but back then, that's not a reference that any Israelite really wanted to hear. Now, I must warn you that my introduction is going to be incredibly long, and my points are going to be a little more concise. And my hope is to restore and put some weight back on that phrase, Samaritan. So I've entitled this message, The Greater Samaritan. My hope, once again, is to put some weight back on that phrase. So let's examine what is the great reversal in the story. Well, let's read the passage and find out. Luke 10, 25 through 37. Is it on there? Yeah, there it is. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. I added that last part, but... You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said this. A man from, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to that place, saw a man had passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled and came where the man was, and he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three men do you think was the neighbor to the men who, who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law, also another word for Pharisee, says, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So, you know, in hearing this story, we might feel convicted initially about the ways that we've not been so nice to people. Maybe we haven't helped our neighbor carry in groceries or help them take down their Christmas lights that are still hanging from last year. But I'm afraid that this story is less concerned with good manners or religious hypocrisy and more concerned with exposing the hatred in our hearts towards anyone who's not from our tribe. And I want to dig into that a little deeper this morning. And as I do, we're going to talk about some challenging things today that I think that this text really presses us to see if we examine it rightly. So there will be some challenging things in here, but probably some jokes too. I don't promise they'll be good, but they'll be there. But my intention, please hear me, is not to unnecessarily offend or point fingers or any of that. That's not the heart of any preacher. What we want to do is examine what did Jesus actually mean when he's talking about a Samaritan? Because ultimately, the words of Jesus came to life in him and ultimately bring life, life to us. So to do so, we have to acknowledge this. And like many of you before, I've heard of this, this passage and it's really simple. It's about being nice, right? That's what I thought. I was really shocked to hear and to read upon deeper examination and study that this story is actually about the dangers of divisiveness and prejudice, even potential racism among the people of God. 
But more importantly, it's about the power of the gospel of Jesus and how we address these things. Do I have your attention now? Okay, great, let's go. So upon hearing that, you might say, Dan, you're crazy. There's no mention of, of skin color, oppression, or slavery, but on the contrary, this passage is actually laced with themes of bigotry. What is bigotry? Let's see if we can put it up. There it is, yep. A prejudice against a person or people on the basis of their membership of a particular group. Uh-oh. Now, of course, these things are really hard to see and they're even harder to acknowledge. I bet all of us in this room have some kind of bias and it's really hard to see. Even the Pharisees back in the day that Jesus is telling the story about probably couldn't see their own bias. But if we're honest with ourselves, we might just look and examine a little bit more about what biases we have. Biases take all kinds of shapes and forms. There's uh, racial bias and political bias, news source bias, gender bias, denominational bias, or bias against those from a different country. But this parable, and all of them really, help us to look inwardly at ourselves first. And if you're like me, sometimes it's uncomfortable to know what we find. Kind of humbly ask us, especially all of us who follow Jesus in this room, to do the same again this morning. Remember that in this text, Jesus is not speaking to a believer, but an unbeliever, sorry, speaking to an unbeliever, but rather someone who was a believer. He was an expert in the law. He was a Pharisee, someone who could probably knew their word backward and forwards. They probably went to, they read the Torah, they kept the Sabbath, they went to synagogue, you know, they paid their tithes, they probably led a small group or two, maybe hosted a men or women's retreats. They did all this stuff. So what am I trying to say? I'm actually trying to say that all of us, whether we'd like to admit it or not, all of us have an inner Pharisee. Which, are, which is our ego and pride that says, I do this God thing right, you do it wrong. I am the real deal, you are the fake. That sentiment of illegitimacy and dehumanization really from the Jews to the Samaritans is not too far off uh, from a slaver in the American South. Why should they have freedom? They just got here. Why should they have a right to vote? They aren't real Americans. Don't believe me? Let's look at this. This is an excerpt from the Sanhedrin, an ancient Supreme Court in Jesus' time. It records saying this in Article 57a. A Jew is not liable to death penalty for killing a Samaritan and may withhold wages from a Samaritan. Ooh, sound familiar? One Jewish writer, Abodazara, says this. Interest may be charged to Samaritans because they are not considered Israelites at all. So this sentiment, unfortunately, carries over into our modern day, too, with similar attitudes being displayed by denominations. Orthodox versus evangelical, Protestant versus Catholic. So much so that it literally split the U.S. in the Civil War and literally divided the country of Ireland to this day. You believe in the wrong theological system. You weren't baptized in the same fashion that I was. You attended that church with that pastor. I don't like that. Hey, what does it mean to you to be filled with the Spirit? You've never even been on a mission trip. I don't see you in youth group. I never even see you with your Bible. That kind of same thing. That's exactly how the Jews, what their attitudes were, were towards the Samaritans. They were seen as illegitimate people of God. They don't have a place in God's inheritance, his protection, prosperity, or even provision. They had their own temple. Did you know that? Yeah, they did. It wasn't based in Jerusalem. They even had their own Bible. They left out all the prophets and the book of wisdom and they only read from the first five books of the Bible. And yet they still claimed to be part of the kingdom of God. They didn't have the judges. They didn't have to endure the Babylonian exile, the chronicles of kings, the prophetic voices, or even recognize the Davidic lineage on the throne. Why should they be included into our numbers probably? They have no hand in fighting for this kingdom. 
See, most of us are familiar with Jews and Pharisees and Levites, but mostly unfamiliar with that phrase, Samaritan. So let me illustrate for you a sentiment that the Jews probably had towards the Samaritans. Now imagine this. Imagine you were due for an inheritance. You and your parents have had some differences along the way, but no matter how you slice it, they are the the parent and you are the child. Now based on that and your bloodline, you are due to receive whatever inheritance that they write for you in the will. And in the will, it reads this. All my promises, wealth, and blessing go to all who are a part of my bloodline. No problem. You're the last surviving descendant. You're due to claim it all. You have worked very hard to keep this inheritance out of the state's hands. You fought and hired lawyers, and you set up a trust fund to put it into. But something strange happens. You decide to take one of those 23andMe tests, and you find that there are other members of your bloodline just not raised in your house. They claim also to be part, they claim also to be children of your parents, and thus, according to the will, are due a slice of your inheritance. Who are these people? They're the people that give your family a bad name. They kind of showed up out of nowhere, they moved into your family's ranch while you were off to college, and didn't ask permission. Not only that, but you find that they married your sister before she died, and they had kids, so technically their kids are now, so, now also due an inheritance, and there are many kids. But it gets worse. Every year that you go on vacation, these people throw parties at your house. They ruin all your stuff, your most sacred thing, your old family photo album, your uncle's church that is also on the property is totally trashed with who knows what. So you start to say, not this half-blood family of mine, they're not even churchgoers. They're some kind of devil worshipers. And now they are literally demanding what they are legal entitled, entitled to from us. So when asked, who are the children of so-and-so so we can hand out the inheritance, they're the first ones to go, we are, we are right here. They're the first ones to stand up. Now after all that, you've just had enough. You're just gonna say, God, I prayed down fire from heaven to consume them. They're gonna come down right now. Who cares about their rights? Who cares that they're somehow related to me? Who cares what the legality is? I just want them gone, totally decimated, thrown out of society, never to be thought of again. And believe it or not, that's exactly what happened to the Samaritans. Worldwide, according to the BBC, there are estimated to be 800 Samaritans, while the Jewish population is over 14 million. Now, after all of that, how many of us would still like to be compared to a good Samaritan? (laughs) It's really hard to think, but the reason that I've shared all of this with you is to put some weight back on that phrase and to provide some context for how offensive the idea was that a Jewish rabbi, Jesus, would make the hero of this story in the context of eternal life a Samaritan. That's the great reversal of the story. That even a Samaritan's faith, coming from a place of love, is closer to the heart of God than a Pharisee's faith coming from a place of self-righteousness, pride, and bigotry. In verse 29, this expert, he even asks, well, Jesus, if you're so holy, who, who is my neighbor? We are to love everyone, right? But, but certainly not, not everyone. The obvious answer to this question is yes, we're supposed to love everyone. That's what it is. But there's a certain cognitive dissonance that happens when we apply the same principle of the Good Samaritan to our modern day. Can I go a little deeper for a second? Are you sure? Are you really sure? All right, all right. Remember, you you told me to do it. You told me to do it. (laughs) You know, 2020 was a painful year for most. What was the most painful thing about it? Well, without exhausting a potential limitless list, I'll say this as far as an observation that I had. 2020 exposed our response to the who is my neighbor question. 
and the inner Pharisee in us all. The same attitude that leads to I am right and you are wrong. I'm a good citizen, you are not. I'm a God-fearing Christian, you are a fake. I'm a champion of freedom, you are a harbinger of oppression. Now notice, I didn't say anything political in the least. I've merely just stated obvious sentiments that we've all probably felt during that painful time in our history. So I would really love to say that we all know how to be a good, loving, and simple Good Samaritan, but it's just not true. History would beg to differ. History shows us, not too far away, just how willing we are to throw our neighbor under the bus. I'm sure many of us thought that we would stop on the side of the road and help. I hope so too, when that time comes. So with that said, as it relates to this parable, are we the Samaritan? Are we the half-dead man? Or are we the negligent religious leaders passing by in self-righteousness? You know, helping someone lying on the floor bleeding on the side of the road seems like a pretty obvious thing to do. But unfortunately, it's also a very easy thing to silence when we focus on the wrong things, which leads me to my first point, being right instead of righteous. You know, there's a, there's a great war film, um, which will no doubt be studied by historians for generations. It's one of the biggest political conflicts that the world has ever seen, um, a historical drama. It's called uh, Captain America Civil War. <laughs> and, you know, Peter Parker, he has a brief conversation. Yeah, you didn't think that <laughs> preaching could come from a Marvel movie? Here it is, we're in for it, let's go. You know, Peter Parker has a brief, a brief conversation with Steve Rogers, Captain America, about a similar concept about self-righteousness. The whole Avengers team is fighting in, among themselves outside an airplane hangar in Germany. And Captain America says, says to Spider-Man, he says, what did Tony Stark tell you about me? To which Spider-Man replies, that you're wrong, you think you're right, and that makes you dangerous. You see, even for superheroes, all it takes to lose our sense of compassion is the sense that we're right, someone else is wrong. Now, if you don't take Spider-Man's word for it, perhaps this quote by Neil Gaiman, the famed author and writer, will help you. In his book, American Gods, it says this, there's never been a true war that wasn't fought between two sets of people who were certain they were in the right. The really dangerous people believe that they're doing whatever they're doing solely and only because it is without question the right thing to do. And that's what makes them dangerous. You see, when we're too focused, like this person in the passage, about getting it right and being right, we forget that the whole point of this godliness thing is righteousness. What is that? It's doing the decent thing, the honorable thing, restoring someone's dignity. That's righteousness. Remember, Romans 4, it actually says that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And by extension, righteousness on ourselves, according to Jesus. So if we understand that, then what is this righteousness thing? What is it all about? It is concentrating on uniting people groups as opposed to dividing people groups. You know, division is really easy. Dissent is really easy, violence is really easy, condemnation is easy, vigilance is easy, Facebook arguments are easy, arguing for the lives that matter is easy, disagreements on vaccinations is easy, labeling precaution as fear is easy. So as people of God, we should be more concerned and being righteous instead of just right. 
You know, I heard someone say in the past, Dan, you know, as Christians, we, should, we, should, we shouldn't be afraid of saying hard things to people sometimes. <sighs> the problem with that is that this is the self-righteous attitude that I'm speaking out against right now. Do we not realize that we forget the people that Jesus was hardest on were the self-righteous people that were convinced they were right and they couldn't be convinced that they were in the wrong. I'm totally convinced that if we did show the truth of God, which is righteousness in Jesus and his gospel instead of our self-righteous attitudes on Facebook, people would flock to the church in droves. Who wouldn't want to be, be a part of more faith and love in their lives? Who wouldn't want more healing in their lives? Who wouldn't want more redemption and restoration in their lives? Absolutely everybody does. The problem is that Jesus is trying to show this man in the passage that we read is that he's an expert in the law as opposed to being an expert in grace and love and mercy. This is another great reversal in this parable, that the expertise of godliness and righteousness comes from a Samaritan who is opposed to the Pharisees, not an expert in godliness or righteousness. By this account, what does that actually mean? That means that atheists and agnostics are probably loving people better than we are in the church. That potentially means that people feel more loved and accepted and cherished outside the church as opposed to inside of it. There's a whole generation of people, and I spent time on the college campus to know, it's not that they don't come to church because they don't believe in God, it's just that when they come and see us, they don't see much of him. You know, if being hard with the truth was working to make disciples, then the Pharisees would have the largest church in the world right now. What people need to see is not how right we are, but how righteous we are. Let us remember that according to how we love each other, people will know that we are disciples of Jesus. As the Samaritan did in that phrase, in that, in that sentiment, how do we go the extra mile for somebody that we disagree with like Jesus? How can we pursue restoration and healing with people who resist us like Jesus did? How can we bring people together under one banner, Jew and Gentile, like Jesus did? You know, if Jew and Gentile can be united in the church, then by God, I believe Democrats and Republicans can too. There you go, yeah. Not enough amens there. That's all right, we'll work on that. But if Paul can be reconciled to the church, a population that he killed, then I believe we can too. If a sinner like me can be reconciled to God, then I believe everyone can too. Which brings us to my next point, which is asking the righteous question. Where did it all go wrong with this expert in the law, the Pharisee? He asked Jesus, who's, who's my neighbor? Who exactly is my neighbor, Jesus? What was he looking for? Validation for Jesus to say, yeah, you're right. Who is your neighbor? I don't know. No one is. What was he looking for? But imagine if for a second we were to rewrite the Bible. I don't know if you can do that, but we're going to do it in this case. Imagine for a second that we were just to say, add a righteous tone to his question. What would, what would that be? Probably the question wouldn't be, Jesus, who is my neighbor? But it would actually be, Jesus, how can I love my neighbor better? That's what righteousness looks like. That's what it looks like to be righteous as opposed to right. Asking Jesus a genuine question as opposed to a declarative statement. What's the difference between these two prayers, which we've all prayed? Jesus, help me to love my neighbor. Number two, Jesus, how can I love my neighbor better? The first one implies that we have little to no love to give and we would show righteousness if we just had a little bit more. But that's not true. The second question comes from empathy in the heart of God. 
It already assumes that we're doing what we can to love people that are different than ourselves. But it's an invitation for Jesus and the Holy Spirit to instruct us on the practicals of how we can show it better. Jesus, how can I love like the Samaritan did? How can I love my neighbor better? Jesus, how how can I love a president or a policeman better? Jesus, how can I love your creation of earth better? Jesus, how can I love people experiencing homelessness better? Jesus, how can I love and stand with people who feel oppressed better? See, when we do that, we're giving ourselves space to just practically improve as opposed to just waiting for something like a feeling. You know, sometimes the darkness in our hearts will never improve to the point that we want. It's just life. But the more loving and the more intentional we are with displaying that love is way better than not showing love at all. I would rather have intentional love than asking a pointed question. You know, as much as we would like to, we just can't correct all the evils and atrocities in this world. I really wish we could, but I don't have much of a say what happens in Ukraine or Afghanistan, France, Brazil, Mexico, Venezuela. But what I can do is love my better neighbor, even though they have a different opinion than I do. You feel like I'm preaching at you now? Well, good, this is a sermon. I mean, you should feel preached at, right? (laughs) What if perhaps we just even ask them openly? What if we just say, hey, listen, I know that we've had our differences on things, we disagree on stuff, but I want you to know that I love you. And I was wondering how I could show you better. Do you need to hear an apology from me? Do you need me to just listen? Do you need me to make a call to a chief or a captain or a mayor or governor or senator? Do you need me to volunteer beside you somewhere? How can I love you better? How can I show you that? See, when we do this, then like the Samaritan who paid for the traveler's lodging and medical bills, then we go the extra mile for someone who's actually in need, regardless of their affiliation. That's when we start to show righteousness. Remember that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died on the cross for us. If Jesus calls us to die to our flesh, then sacrificing for our neighbor shouldn't be a problem. Sometimes we're inclined to love people in the manner in which we can best give it. But probably the more righteous thing to do is love people in a manner in which they could best receive it. This is admittedly easier said than done, which is why Jesus is talking to the Pharisee in the first place. Upon seeing the men naked and bleeding, I suppose a loving thing to do as the church would be to stop and pray for this man. Never mind that it would be the most awkward, naked, bloody prayer of all time. (laughs) I don't disagree. Prayer is the most powerful thing that we can do as the church, but that should be the bare minimum of what we do. It's the easiest thing. Prayer is the, the easiest thing for people to hide behind, but it's yet the first tool a Christian would bring out of their tool belt. Faith for prayer is great. Faith for healing is great. But you know what's better? Actually helping them get better. Faith without works is dead, remember? James talked about that in the second chapter of his book. And that's exactly what the traveler was. The traveler was half dead. So let's just help him. Prayer is good. But clothing the man, checking him into a hotel, paying for his health care, and then praying for him is even better. As Christians, we must do both. The hearing and doing of the message of Jesus. You know, in regard to this parable, there's a commentator who I really love, Klein Snoggers, he says this. This parable exposes any religion with a mania for creeds and an anemia for deeds. 
The fear of works righteousness is far too exaggerated in most churches. The question of identity is never merely a question of what we believe is fact, but what we are. Particularly what we are in relation to God, what motivates us and controls our being. Which leads me finally to my last point. We should get our hands dirty and love people who are opposed to us, even when the rest of the church doesn't. Let's just all agree right now that if no one else does, then we will. As I said before, the easy thing to do is dissension. That's easy. Divisiveness and distaste for our fellow man, that is so easy. The hard work, the gospel work, the Jesus work is uniting people and building a bridge between people who are different. If nothing else, Christians should be experts at that. If there's any political tensions in the world, why wouldn't governments bring in Christians to mediate? That should be the best thing that we can do is bring peace. That's what politics and economic systems and social reform, that's what they can't do. You cannot legislate the human heart. You just can't. You can't make a law that prevents people from sinning. You just can't. If that's true, which it is, then our emphasis should be on conflict resolution as opposed to being experts in the law. Now, what I'm not saying is this. I'm not saying that any, any disciple has a, a place for complacency or laziness or passivity in their lives. What I am saying is this. Remember that the peacekeepers have the kingdom of God, not the Facebookers. So really, any true activism first starts internally and shows up externally. When we love indiscriminately, maybe even aggressively, and intentionally, we tear down all kinds of walls that no other thing in this world can do. That's what Jesus did. That's what Lincoln did, that's what MLK did. Sometimes God's people don't do that too well. The Jewish people weren't doing it too well back then, so Jesus just showed up on the scene himself and built the church. He did the heavy lift when no one else would. So to bring it back around to Jesus, some of you might say, man, I never even talked about Jesus once. Well, here we go. You know, Jesus united people under the gospel and in the church that were previously ununitable. Jesus loved people when they were unlovable. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, caused them all to speak different languages on the day of Pentecost so that every man could hear the message of love in their own way. Jesus inspired Paul in Galatians to say, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. The great message of love in the Bible is that godly love is not self-persevering, it's self-sacrificing. How else can we expect to die for the church or our friends if we cannot first even die to ourselves? How can we be an expert in love when we're naturally experts in self-promotion and vindication. Do we understand these two things? Jesus healed out of two things, inconvenience and compassion. Most of Jesus' greatest works of miracles were out of those two things, being inconvenient and compassion. We all have our own agendas throughout the day. We're all busy. But if Jesus stopped to heal the blind man and a woman with a bleeding disorder and allowed himself to be inconvenienced on account of love, then shouldn't we do the same? Do we really realize that Jesus, everyone that Jesus healed, 
eventually died anyway. Some of us are waiting on healing. We've been praying and fasting for years and we might get it and yet our fate would be the same. But why did Jesus do it then? Because it mattered. It mattered. Compassion matters. It matters to God, so it matters to us. Jesus felt their pain. He knew what it was like. So if that's the case, we shouldn't say, hey, I know it's hard now, but you're gonna get better on the other side. There's a whole kingdom waiting for you in the next life. No, instead, the heart of ministry is, hey, listen, let me help you. I don't know what got you here. Maybe it was someone else. Maybe it's your own fault. I don't know what it is, but I know that Jesus would help you, so we as the church are gonna do that too. And when we do that, that's when we embrace that righteousness and reconciliation. I remember there was a conversation that I had with um, a friend of mine who found themselves apologizing and being punished for something they did not do. No one has to be happy about something like that. But ironically, taking blame for something you didn't do is arguably the most Christian thing you can do. Isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? Yeah, he did. Incurring debt on our own name, despite not deserving it, is godly. And it's a righteous love. And that's an amazing gospel picture. Paying the price for something that wasn't our fault, like Jesus did on the cross. Jesus came down from heaven to place himself on that cross for you and for me. And to bring it all home and tie it all together, who are we in the Good Samaritan story? I think maybe the church is actually the ones that are beaten and left for dead by the evils of the world. Maybe by the evils of our own doing. But we're definitely bleeding and feeling the weight and consequences of our own sin that brought division between us and God. And Jesus, the good Samaritan, the greater Samaritan, came down from heaven to bridge that gap. Jesus is the greater Samaritan. He crossed the bridge of the infinite to get to us when we were naked and dead in our sin so that now we just have to cross his bridge of life to get back to God. Something that we couldn't do on our own. No religion can do that. It takes a greater Samaritan to do that. Jesus stopped and helped us back on our feet, brought healing to our lives, and ultimately paid our debts on the cross so that you and I could have peace and be made right with God. So as I close in prayer, God, I just pray that you would illuminate this in our lives. God, would you highlight to us, Lord, the ways that you have been a greater Samaritan to us, God. You died the death that we should have died, and you lived the life that we should have lived. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for helping us, God, when we were helpless. Thank you for finding us, Lord. Thank you for being that God, the greater Samaritan, that not only helps someone that's opposed to him, but actually unites and uplifts that same person. I pray this message for the church today. In your name we pray. Thanks Amen. for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.